Okay, well, um, good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike, and my wife, Sarah, who sat over there, and I, as you would have known if you saw us being prayed for, uh, we have, as, as Matt and Phil do, we have the great privilege of being part of the leadership team here at Real Life Church. And our specific responsibility is the Freedom in Christ course. And so, um, as Matt said, we are now leading a, a new course, a new small group-based course in our home. It just started last week. And it's just a fantastic opportunity for people to come and learn about what Jesus has done for them, to really connect with their identity in Christ and to be set free from things from their past. Um, many of you have been through the course because we did it as a church, like Matt said. And um, now uh, there's 11 people um, who have come recently who are now on the course. And we're going to be running these fairly regularly, probably a couple of years from now on. So if you're interested, if you haven't done it yet, then we will be doing more in the future. So let us know. Um, my wife and I, we have three children. Uh, up until a few weeks ago, I could have said three preschool children, uh, but the eldest one, Sophie's just started reception, and in fact, this last week was her first full week, so she's pretty tired, uh, pretty challenging, um, but she's had a great time. She's really settling in well. Uh, we've then got Joy, who's three years old. In fact, it was her birthday on Wednesday, so she's growing up into another amazing little girl, um, and then we have baby Elliot, who's uh, just coming up on seven months, although looking at him, you'd think he's probably a bit older than that. He's a bit of a monster. Uh, but a real blessing, nonetheless. Um, so that's us. Now, today we're going to be continuing in the series uh, in Hebrews. So over the last two weeks, Stuart has done parts one and two, covering the first chapter. So today I'm doing part three, and we're going to be looking at the entirety of chapter two. And the title of the message today is Jesus, Founder of Our Salvation. Now, this series, as it says up there, Jesus is better than everything, Right? However, he's not merely a better salvation. It's not like there's lots of other ways you can be saved, and I'm trying to argue with you that he's the better way. No, no, he's the, the, the big idea today, he is the only salvation. He is the founder of our only salvation. He's the only way to get right with God and have any hope for the future. So in, through Hebrews 2 today, what I want to do is take a look at some of the nuts and bolts of why we really need this salvation and how it works and the other effects that it has for us. And I think that listening to this today, there's going to be three types of people. First, and this will be most of us, you're a Christian, you're saved. You've had an awakening to your sin, a conviction of your sin. Uh, the Holy Spirit has come and brought your spirit back to life. Uh, you've repented of your sin and you've run to Jesus because he is the only salvation. And so most of you here today are probably in that category. You are a Christian and you're saved. Second category of people who might be here today are people who maybe you've been around church for a little while, you've been in church. You might even call yourself a Christian, but you haven't experienced that process I just described. And you're not actually saved. And it is possible to be in the church and not actually saved. I pray there's not many people like that. But if you come to realize as we go through that that's you, um, there's going to be an opportunity for you to do something about that. And we'll learn you know, what Jesus has done for you through this chapter. And then the third category is you know you're not a Christian. Maybe you're visiting here today. You came out of curiosity. Maybe you're here with a friend or a family member. And you had no idea what you were getting into. Um, and maybe through the worship time, you've been entirely freaked out. Um, I know I was in that situation before I got saved. That, that was my first experience at church. I came, I experienced worship, and just thought, what on earth is going on? It really freaked me out. Um, but if that's you, we're really glad you're here. And we just, I, I pray that you have an encounter with the Jesus we worship because he is longing to connect with you. But I want to tell you first off that today's message applies to all of you. It doesn't matter which of those three categories you're in. Even if you're already a Christian, just because we're going to be talking about Jesus and his salvation and what he did on the cross for us, just because that, that may have had its effect in your life already, it doesn't mean you can just switch off and move on from there and, and not think about it anymore. One Bible commentator puts it this way. He says, we never move on from the cross, only into a more profound understanding of the cross. 
So I'm going to pray this morning for you and for me that the good news of the cross wouldn't just be something that comes first chronologically in our Christian life and then we just never look back on, but rather it would stay first and foremost, central in our minds, because it is critical for sustaining our joy and our fruitfulness as a Christian. So you also need to pay attention. Don't switch off. But before we get into the scriptures, I just want to say, I've had a really hard time preparing this message, particularly over the last week. There's various things that have just been a real challenge and, and squeeze the time I've had to prepare. And so I think the devil really doesn't want you to hear the message that God has given me to share today. And so I want to do something about that before we actually get into the scriptures. I want to make, some, I want to make a de- declaration. Now, if you've been through the Freedom in Christ course, this might be a little bit familiar to you. If you haven't, it might seem a little bit weird, to be honest, but it is biblical So get on board, and let's give it a shot. So in the name and authority of Jesus Christ, I command the devil and his demons to be bound to silence and to release us to be free to hear the word of God. I am a child of God. I am bought by the blood of Christ. And I say to every enemy of the Lord Jesus that you may not interfere or in any way prevent God's will from being done in this church because we belong to God and you cannot touch us. So I command you to leave this place now. Now, does it feel quiet to you in your mind? I know the first time I heard and made that kind of declaration, I just thought, why hasn't someone told me this before, that I can do this? I can tell the devil to flee, and he has to. And it just leaves us with a a quiet, peaceful mind. And it puts us in a good frame to receive the word of God. So we're going to do that now. We're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, please turn to it. It's going to be up on the screen as well, um, and I'll read it to you. So Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus, I just want to start off by thanking you for your word, for your truth, for what you teach us, for how you reveal things to us by the Holy Spirit. And I pray today, Lord, now that we've made that declaration at the beginning and bound your enemies to silence, I pray that you will come, fill that void, Holy Spirit, and bring truth to people's hearts. I pray that you'll bring conviction of sin. I pray that you will reveal your glory to people. I pray that you will show people how and why you died for them. And I pray, Lord, people will turn in repentance and put their trust in you today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to uh, break this chapter down into four parts, four sections that we're going to look at individually. Uh, The first one covers the first four verses, and it is all about how Jesus is our great salvation. And it comes with some warnings, so we're going to go through what those warnings are. The second part from verses 5 to 9 is how Jesus tasted death for everyone. And we're going to unpack what that really means for us. And then the third part, verses 10 to 13, we're going to look at how we are adopted into God's family and how Jesus is our brother It's an amazing statement to make. God is our brother. God the Son is our brother. So we'll look at what that means and how it works. And then the last part from the the final five verses, 14 to 18, we're going to look at how Jesus became human and how he sets us free. So in the first part, Jesus is our great salvation, and he comes with some warnings. So chapter 2 starts off with the author giving us a warning, and the first thing is a command or a duty something we have to do. And the connection with chapter 1 here is really important. Chapter 2 starts with the word therefore. And so chapter 1 is the reason for this duty. So just to summarize chapter 1, you could summarize it as follows. God has spoken. He has spoken by his son. And that son is the creator and the sustainer and the Lord and the redeemer of the whole world. There aren't any commands for us in the first chapter. There's just declaration and celebration of the greatness of Jesus. And so... Um, this is then the first reason why we should listen to him, this first, uh, the first reason for this duty. And so right off the back of this, chapter 2 starts off with, therefore, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So in other words, because God has spoken to us through Jesus, and because Jesus is the greatest person ever, even greater than the angels, in the Christian life we must go on listening to God's word to us in Jesus. And we have to do this with very close attention. We can't treat it casually. We can't act like we already know everything we need to know to do the Christian life or that we we will gain nothing from listening to Jesus. There's an urgency here in this first verse. We need to consider him. We need to focus on him. We need to fix our eyes on him. We need to learn about him. We need to figure out um, what he's like, what he says, the way he sees the world, the way he sees us with great tenderness and affection and how much he loves us. So one of the great burdens of this book of Hebrews One of the main aims of it is that we as the readers will see how serious it is to listen to Jesus, to listen to him, the word of God, and to consider him, to fix our eyes on him. And so this is the first commandment we get in this book. And I think verse 1 gives us two reasons uh, for why we should listen to Jesus. The first we've already covered, it's referring back to chapter 1. It's saying this, this Jesus, he's the creator and the sustainer and the ruler and redeemer of the whole world. He's greater than the angels and God has spoken to us through him. And so that's an obvious reason why we should listen to him. Secondly, and this one comes with a warning, you see the verse says we must pay much closer attention lest we drift away. So there's a warning here. We need to pay much closer attention lest we drift away. 
So let's consider this word drifting. It just means to, to float by. It's what a, uh, a leaf or a piece of bark or a dead fish might do. It just float down the stream past the boat who might be being rowed upstream. You don't need any life or any motion to just float by. All you need to do is just do nothing, and you're going to float by downstream away from the source. So what Hebrews is saying here is that if we don't vigilantly pay closer attention to the Word of God, we will float by, we will drift away from God. So if there's no urgency, no vigilance, no focus listening to Him or considering Him and His truth, the result is that you don't just stand still, you actually drift away. And what he's saying here is that this is dangerous. It's a deadly thing in the Christian life, this drifting away from God. But how dangerous? Well, for that, we need to consider the next couple of verses. So it says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The answer to that question is we won't escape. If we neglect the salvation of Jesus, we will not escape. So you see the connection here between this drifting and neglecting our great salvation. And the result is that we won't escape. We won't escape from this just retribution that comes from every disobedience and transgression. And we really need, there's, quite, there's quite a few thoughts going on here. It's quite complex. And we just need to take a bit of time to consider what it really means, and what it's really saying. So verse 2 talks about every transgression or disobedience. And so this is where we do something that's wrong or we fail to do something that's right. And this is what the Bible calls sin. It's basically missing the mark it's not meeting up to God's perfect, holy standard. So I want to ask you a question this morning. How do you see yourself? Do you, do you think that you are basically good enough? You're not all that bad. There's all those other people out there that are awful. I'm not that bad. I'm good enough. You might think, well, you know, I, I don't beat people up. I, don't, I haven't stolen anything. or Well, at least not since I was a kid, but that doesn't count right. Uh, I certainly haven't murdered anyone. I'm not as bad as those guys, so I'm, I'm okay. I'm good enough. I'm a pretty good person. Maybe that's where you are. Well, here's what the Bible says. In Romans chapter 3, many of you will know this, all have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Do you think all includes you? Hopefully you do. <clears throat> in case you're still not sure, I'll tell you how I was convinced. So I grew up not in a Christian family. I had no exposure to church, really, apart from when school took us to some kind of thing like one of those Chris Dingle services at Christmas that I just didn't understand or have any interest in. Um, so I grew up, went through school, went to university. I wasn't a Christian, had no, no real interest in God whatsoever. But when I got to university, I met a few other people who were Christians, and they seemed quite excited about it. They seemed to really believe, and they thought going to church was a great thing. And I didn't really realize it at the time, but something was going on kind of in my subconscious, and it was starting to challenge me and start to think, well, you know, these people are fairly intelligent people, um, and they seem to really, really be going for this. They seem to really believe. So maybe there is something to it. And I think, I think Jesus was even then starting to work in the back of my mind without me even realizing. But eventually one of them invited me to go to church. And I went along, and little known to me, it was a full-on present-the-gospel meeting um, and there's a guy there called Adrian Holloway, many of you may have heard of, and he was preaching the gospel. Um, and in the message, he did something which really, really convinced me um, that I am a sinner and I needed to take this seriously. What he did is he took out, now this is a while ago, took out a videotape. <laughs> I thought about maybe bringing a DVD or a smartphone with an MP4 or something like that just to bring it up to date, but you know, 
Videotape's quite interesting. I'm aware many of you may have no idea what this is. <laughs> um, but this is what we had before DVDs, okay? So he got this out and he said, now imagine this videotape had on it evidence of everything you've done that is wrong, everything you're ashamed of. And then he said, but even more than that, imagine this has evidence of everything that you, you thought was in secret, you thought nobody was watching. Everything you know you've done that you're ashamed of. And then he said, even more than that, imagine this has got evidence on it of every, every horrible thing you've even thought. And then he said, how would you feel if I were to find a video player and put this up on the big screen in front of everyone in this room? And the room just went silent, very much like now. <laughs> and I heard that, and I have to tell you, any, any pretense in me to think that I was basically good enough just vanished. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're not good enough in and of ourselves. And our verse in Hebrews says that every transgression and disobedience receives a just retribution. So what is this? There's a retribution for our sin, and this retribution, it says, is just, it's right. So the Bible says again in Romans, a bit later in chapter 6, it says that the wages of sin, that is what we deserve because of our sin, is death. Separation from God and death. So I've got a challenge for us. Do we, first of all, really believe and accept and affirm that we have sinned? And if we do, do we really believe and accept and affirm that that sin deserves death? That's actually quite hard to admit, quite hard to accept. But that is the truth that the Bible teaches. If you're still struggling to accept that, I'll just give you another example. This is from a book called Christ Our Mediator by a guy called C.J. Mahaney. <coughs> he says, Recently I received a thank you email from a young woman who recalled her reaction when she first heard me identify the gospel as our church's lasting passion and priority. She told me, I remember sitting there thinking, what does he mean? Yes, we're saved because Jesus died for our sins, but don't we then focus on other aspects of the Christian life? Meanwhile, under our teaching, she began recognizing, and this is where he quotes her, that there was a problem deeper than my outward expressions of sin, harsh words, complaining, etc. I was learning about the sin in my heart and the motives at the root. I vividly remember driving down the road one day and God opening my eyes to see that I'm a wretched sinner to the very core of my being. In that second, I thought, what am I to do? I had that same experience when I realized with this, through this videotape picture and I, I admitted to myself, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner, I'm not good enough. And I saw God and how holy he is. I was terrified in that moment because I just saw the gap. I saw the massive disparity between me completely separated from this holy God. It didn't last for too long. Thankfully, Jesus came, revealed himself to me. Um, but then she goes on to say, Instantly, I was clearly aware that this is why Jesus Christ came and died on a cross for me. I laughed out loud and said, My God, only you could show me what a wretched sinner I am and make it the greatest news I've ever heard. The truth of Jesus' sacrifice became more real to me than ever before. Now, I don't, I don't know this woman. I don't know the circumstances in her background. But when I read that story... I would argue this could actually be the point where this woman got saved. She may have thought she was a Christian beforehand. She may have been in church like she said she was. She was there listening to the teaching. But I don't think she was actually saved. You see, this awakening to our sin, to its magnitude and its ugliness and its offensiveness to God, this awakening is something that the Holy Spirit does in the process of saving us. 
And it's what propels us to run to Jesus because he is the only solution. We realize we cannot do it on our own. We can't fix this problem. We have this massive sin problem and Jesus is our only great salvation. So if you haven't had this revelation of the enormity and the wretchedness of your sin, it could be that you are not saved. Now that is a sobering thought and I, I'm, I'm tentatively kind of putting that out there because I don't want to sow any false doubt. And we'll, we'll look at how you can kind of tell where you may be. But my prayer today is that right now, if that is you, I, just, I, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would come. I pray that you would bring a revelation, an awakening to sin. I pray that you would show people uh, the situation they're really in. I pray, Lord, that you will bring truth. I pray that you'll come and reveal Jesus to these people and cause them to repent and flee to you. But if we neglect this great salvation and if we drift away, the verses here are telling us that we won't escape, we'll be lost. We won't inherit eternal life. We will be eternally separated from God. This is literally life and death stuff. But I'm aware that some of you may be sitting there thinking, well, I know I'm not as close to God as I used to be. I, I, I recognize I've drifted a little bit, maybe a lot. Does that mean I'm not saved? Well, not necessarily. Some drifting is normal. And in fact, I, I would probably say that over the last few months, I have gone backwards a little bit. And a lot of the reason for that is because having a newborn baby in the house, the third, um, life is tough and tight and busy and there's not a lot of time and I haven't really given enough time to reading the word of God and doing what it says at the beginning, paying much closer attention to Jesus. I think I probably have drifted a little bit backwards because of that. Um, <clears throat> so some drifting is normal, but the mark of the true child of God is that you don't drift for long. You certainly don't drift permanently and go away and never come back. Some drifting is normal. So if you're in that situation this morning, one of the signs of hope that you are saved, you can test yourself on this, is that you feel pricked. When I'm, I'm, as I'm speaking, you're thinking, oh goodness, the Holy Spirit's really jabbing you in the ribs and saying, you've got to get back into this. And you feel a passion, you feel this desire rising to really get back into your word, to run after Jesus in the days and the weeks and the years ahead. If you feel that, then you're saved. You may have drifted, but you're saved. But if you're hearing what I'm saying and you have no desire to pay any closer attention to Jesus, it could be a sign that you're not saved. But this can be remedied. You can always, you can always turn, repent of your sin and turn to Jesus and be saved. So keep listening and we'll talk you through that. So just to wrap up this first section then, we have a massive sin problem. We can't solve it on our own. We can't make ourselves good enough. We deserve death for our sin. But Jesus is our great salvation, so don't neglect this. Don't ignore him. Don't drift away. We must pay much closer attention to him and to what he's done for us, or we won't escape. So Jesus is our great salvation, but what does that really mean? How does he do it? How does he save? So we're going to go on to part two. So now we're going to look at verses five to nine, where we'll see that Jesus tasted death for everyone. <clears throat> Now, in this section, the writer starts off by quoting from Psalm 8. You may, th those verses in the middle may look familiar to you because he's quoting from Psalm 8. And that was written centuries before Jesus lived on earth. But he then goes on to apply it to Jesus and to point out, actually, this was a prophecy about him. It was written centuries before, but it's a prophecy about Jesus. And interestingly, the, the commentators are all over the place on this passage. They have all sorts of different interpretations of what the writer is trying to say. But also different Bible translations render it differently. So the version I read was the English Standard Version, ESV. Um, and you see, certainly in verses 7 and 8, it uses him or he. Uh, so it says, the ESV says, um, 
You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. But some other versions don't use him and he, they use them and they. And it makes it sound very different. So for example, the, the NIV, which many of you might have, um, says it the other way around. It says, you made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under their feet. And that sounds very different. <clears throat> but this is because when the psalm was first written down, it was actually initially intended to be an expression of how mankind is given authority over creation, to subdue it, to tend to it, to look after the animals, and to take care of the earth. And so where it used son of man, you'll probably see back in the psalm, it, it doesn't use capital letters on son and man, it's just in, in lower case. And it was initially meant to refer to humanity, which is plural. So those verses use them and they, and it's talking about man. But the Jewish Christians who would have received this letter to the Hebrews, they would have recognized this term, son of man, as a title that Jesus often used of himself. This God who became the son of a human. And also, the writer to the Hebrews, he's intending to apply this psalm to Jesus. And so he's trying to make it clear by using the singular he and him. Try and make it clear, no, this is actually talking about Jesus. So what you get with some translations, they might be confused by the difference, or they're not quite sure how to render it, and you get the them or they we saw in the NIV. But the ESV, I, I believe, is actually right and uses he, because that's, that's what the author is trying to communicate through these verses and, and what he's trying to apply. And actually, this causes some amazing realizations to come about. And in particular, I love the way verses, uh, the first two phrases of the quote work together when you realize that Son of Man is talking about Jesus. It says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man, that's Jesus, that you care for him. It's like it's putting us in the same category. And Jesus is identifying with us. We're in this together. And so then in the following verses, the writer goes on to expand this quotation. He says, look, when it says he was made lower than the angels for a little while, it's talking about when Jesus was on the earth. But now he's crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because it says he suffered death. And by the grace of God, he has tasted death for everyone. So that sin problem we were talking about earlier, where the wages of sin is death, what's due to us for our sin is our death. Jesus came to taste that death for us in our place, completely undeservedly. He never sinned. He was perfect. He didn't deserve death. We did. But he came and he experienced it for us. And also it says, by the grace of God, it's a free gift that we don't deserve. He loves us so much. He just wants us to be with him. And we'll do whatever it takes. But don't be thrown off by the word taste. When it says taste, it doesn't just mean that he takes a little bit of this death and we're left to face the rest of it. No, no. I think it's just that Jesus later, we know, rose from the dead. So while he fully experienced death, and the worst kind, he was brutally crucified, he, he really did die. Later, he came back to life. And so, in a sense, he tasted death for a time, but it couldn't hold on to him. So this death that we deserve has been taken by Jesus, and he offers us this free gift of salvation. We can be forgiven and made right with God. This free gift is absolutely amazing. We've got an amazing Savior. So let's look at the next section then. This is verses 10 to 13, about how Jesus is our brother. So in these verses, we see something else that happens when we accept this free gift of salvation. We get adopted into God's family. So that Jesus is our brother. But that is an amazing statement. The Son of God is our brother. So we need to just spend a bit of time to consider what that really means. And I just want to say, first of all, that 
I'm aware that my thoughts here and what I'm going to try and communicate to you is just utterly inadequate to the greatness of the Son of God being my brother. It's just such a staggering thought that I just, what I'm about to say feels to me inadequate, but it's the best I've got, so I'll, I'll give you what I can. So let's look in particular at verses 10 and 11. So it starts off, it says, For it was fitting that he, now this is God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. So God thought it was fitting, suitable, appropriate to, to perfect or to complete the beauty and the work of Christ through suffering. And then verse 11 tells us why. It says, because he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are being sanctified, that's us, his brothers, all have one source, which is a little bit ambiguous. It could mean all of one father, all of one nature, but we all have one source, and that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, kind of my thoughts here is, is it comes back to one great aim of God in salvation is that he wants to create this amazing, unified family of children with us and Jesus Christ as children in this family. And Jesus is both essentially very different from us, but also deeply united to us. Both really different and really like. He is fully man, so he identifies with us. He came, he lived as a human, he's experienced our weaknesses, our temptations, um, so he identifies with us, he is like us. But he's also fully God, and so he's essentially different in his nature. But here's the thing, if all the brothers and sisters in the family, us, have experienced suffering, except one, if Jesus hadn't, then the unity of this family is at risk. So to have this truly united family, despite what it meant for him, Jesus takes on human nature and he goes through suffering and death. And so he can lead us to glory through suffering and we follow him because we see that he has suffered in ways that we do. We can identify with him, we will follow him. And all of this hangs on God's aim to create a family that is just so unified, so connected, that the family would be jeopardized or undermined if this perfect oldest brother didn't go through all the pain of the rest of the children. So we have this unique, glorious Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of God. He put aside his deity so he could come down and share our nature as human beings, which we'll see more of in the next section, and go through the suffering that we go through. And it's all, it's all so that he and we could be included in this amazing, beautiful family of God. Now, I, I, I think I've barely scratched the surface here, but it's a glorious picture, just to get a glimpse of how close God wants us to himself, how much he loves us, how much he desires for us to be in his perfect, united family. <coughs> Jesus is our brother. So, we'll go into part four, and this is verses 14 to 18. <coughs> Really, these verses are talking about the reasons for Christmas, the reasons why Jesus came and lived as a man. Uh, just so you know, 13 weeks to go, by the way. And uh, just so you know, I like Lego. And, um, but it's talking about the reasons that Jesus became human. And I think I can see four reasons in these verses. The first one, let's, let's read. It says, Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is, flesh and blood. So the first reason is that because we are human, he became human. That's the first reason that we're given, and we'll see why he wanted to do that. The second reason, it goes on, it says, in order that through death, let's just stop right there, this is reason number two, so that he could die. God can't die, so he became human so that he could die. It's not as though Jesus planned to come among us for some other reason, and something went wrong, and he thought, oh, well, I'd better go to the cross and die now. No, no, that's not what happened at all. The purpose 
for his coming was to die. And in order to die, he had to share in flesh and blood. He had to be human. Let's go on. The third reason then, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So reason number three is to destroy the devil. He became human so that he could die, so that he could destroy the devil. And we'll see how that works in a minute. And then the fourth reason, and he did this in order that he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the fourth reason was to deliver us from slavery that results from the fear of our impending death. So I'll just sum them up just to remind you. Jesus became human because one, we are human. Two, so that he could die. Three, so that through that death he might destroy the devil. And then four, so that he could free us from slavery to the fear of death. Those are the four reasons he became human. Those are the reasons for Christmas. Now the writer is assuming here that everybody has a deep, if subconscious, um, fear of dying. And that deep fear holds us in lifelong slavery. Before I was a Christian, I was afraid of dying. Um, But at that time, I didn't even understand that if I died... Um, I didn't understand that I was a sinner and that meant (laughs) to a holy God I was completely separated from him and I was going to suffer hell. I didn't know that. If I'd known that, my fear would have been even greater. Um, But at the time, I just thought that, you know, when I died, that was it. Existence ceased. And so I really wanted this life to count. I wanted to make the most of this life, to enjoy it, to have pleasure, to have stuff, to have money. And it made me strive to get the most out of life. But really, I was in slavery. I was in slavery to this fear of death. I didn't want to die. And you see people all around who are so enslaved, they, just, they even don't want to look like they're getting older. So you get plastic surgery, you get teeth whitening, you get just for men. I've had my grey shaved off today, <laughs> um, but not necessarily for that reason. Um, but it's slavery. We are, we are in this slavery to the fear of death. But we can be set free from that because Jesus destroyed the works of the devil, it says. And that's possible because he died, and that's possible because he became human. But let's just look at the second and third ones again. Um, By dying, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil. Now, the word destroy here, it doesn't mean that he put him out of existence. What it means is that he he nullified him. He broke the back of his power. He took away his capacity to cause this slavery to fear. So how did he do that? I think the best answer is given in an amazing passage in uh, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. So I'll just read those to you. It says, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So God made us alive together with Christ. He forgave our sins by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us. He set it aside. How? By nailing it to the cross. So when Jesus died for us, this record of debt that stood against us, with all our sins in that record, he nailed it to the cross. And now here's the key. He goes on to say, having disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's the devil and all of his demons, he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So how did he do that? Well, he nailed something to the cross. He nailed to the cross the record of my debts that stood against me. And so what this means is that he took away the one weapon that could damn me. You know, Satan is the great accuser, right? He stands before God with this great big folder. And in this folder is a record of all my sins, everything I've done wrong, all of them. Like that videotape we talked about at the beginning. And he stands there and he accuses me and you before God day and night. But when I put my trust in Jesus and when I'm united to him, his death counts for me. 
And what Jesus does is he takes that record of debt out of the devil's hands. He takes it out of his hands. He takes my sin on himself so that the wrath of God is diverted away from me and onto him. And he willingly suffers and dies in my place, nailing my sin to the cross. He says, it's finished, it's done with. You're forgiven, you're not guilty, you're free. Your sin is nailed to that cross, it's gone. So we come back over to Hebrews chapter two and it goes on, it says, so that by death he destroyed the devil. He nullified him, he made him powerless. He disarmed him by taking out of his hand the only weapon he had, our record of debt. So now the devil is helpless to damn us or to destroy us. He has no power over us, which is something we often don't understand. The world tries to tell us the devil is all the, has all this power, like he's an equal and opposite power to God, and he is not. He's been disarmed. He is weak and powerless. So Jesus delivers us from the fear of death, and he sets us free from that awful slavery. And that's owing to the fact that the devil is destroyed by having his ability to accuse us removed. And that happens because Jesus died, and that happens because he became human. God became a man. What a saviour. What a saviour. Will you stand with me, please? I think, Van, if you can come back up. There is, there are a load of things we could respond to this morning. And I've wrestled with what's the best way to um, give you opportunities to respond. I know the way I, I finished up that. I certainly, I just want to worship Jesus. Because he has disarmed the devil. He has taken the only weapon he had out of his hands. And he has set me free from the fear of death. He's given me this hope of eternal life with him. So I think what, what we're going to do is we're going to go straight into worship. Um, but there are many things that you may need to respond to. So as we're worshipping, I just want to encourage you, if you feel God speaking to you um, and, and you want to bring something to share for people to respond to, please do so. As we go through worship, I want to leave some room for us to respond. There are people here, like I said at the beginning, who you are Christian. Um, but hopefully through this morning, you've just gained a greater revelation of the enormity of your sin and how amazing it is what Jesus has done for you. And you just want to worship him. That's one way to respond. But I think there are people here today who you've been in the church and you've been around church for a while. Um, and you may even call yourself a Christian, but maybe you've realized today I might not actually be saved. I want to give an opportunity for you to come and repent and put your trust in Jesus and be saved. And the same goes for people who you came here knowing you're not a Christian. You came here knowing that you're not saved. And you came here just to visit, just out of curiosity. And maybe today, Jesus has awakened you to your terrible situation, to your sin and how offensive it is to him. But he is here, and he wants to introduce himself to you, he wants to connect with you, and he wants to save you. He wants you to have this eternal life. So let's worship him, and let's really give him all the glory.